The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello, and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. We go deep with Chinese medicine practitioner Amy Forth. Amy opens up about this very popular and effective area of Eastern medicine that I find complements Western medicine so beautifully. When many years ago I first entered private practice, I suddenly had a lot of time to really listen to my patients, and what I found was many women educating me about the positive impact that Chinese medicine and acupuncture was having on their health. In this episode, Amy explains what led her to study Chinese medicine. We go through a little bit of the history of Chinese medicine. How can it support women's health today? What is its role in PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome? What is its role in endometriosis and in IVF? We discuss education and research in both Chinese medicine and acupuncture. First, a little bit about Amy Forth. She is the director of the Acupuncture Pregnancy Clinic Alexandria, located in the Alexandria Specialist Day Hospital, Sydney. Amy is a practitioner, educator, and researcher committed to the development of integrative models of healthcare. Alongside IVF Australia and with Associate Professor Gavin Sachs, Amy created the Alexandria Multidisciplinary Education Series. She has presented widely on acupuncture and integrative practices in hospitals, IVF clinics, and at conferences and universities. Amy's research includes a Master's of Global Health that focused on integrative practices, an AMA-led project on interprofessional communication and involvement in clinical trials investigating the use of acupuncture for IVF, PCOS, and endometriosis. Amy currently holds a part-time position at NICOM, the National Institute of Complementary Medicine, where she is currently working on integrative medicine education development. I hope you enjoy our chat. Amy Forth, welcome to the show. Oh, wow. Hi, Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, where do we start with Chinese medicine and acupuncture? Um, I suppose my question for you is what led you to study that, the, that, that area of, of, of medicine? Sure. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think I actually came to Chinese medicine um, or compl- like a complementary therapy like so many practitioners do, like I had a complaint, a health complaint when I was younger and I was really interested in health. I loved learning about medicine and health and I just, you know, sort of chewed up any information about it. And um, when I was about 17, I had secondary uh, amenorrhea. Um, So I stopped getting my periods and that was to me like it was something I really wanted to sort of solve the problem. I, it kind of upset me that that this had happened, and so I went through um, just the normal conventional medicine um, pathways, and I had some testing, and um, but they found that it was like not nothing really that they could sort of see. How um, I was pretty curious, and I really just felt like there was something not quite kind of right. So I um, I went to see a Chinese medicine practitioner. I'd also seen sort of naturopaths and um, I was very into kind of complementary medicine. And I saw this old uh, uh, Chinese man, he was Professor Wong, and he um, did some acupuncture on me. And I just was kind of a bit blown away with the effects. Um, like I did actually get my period within a couple of weeks of treatment. So that was so I felt pretty impressed with that. But the thing that I really loved about it was it felt quite sort of transformative to me. So I think at this time I was like super stressed, um, a young person, um, you know, as a lot of teenagers are. I was very worried and anxious um, and I just found like the acupuncture really helped me feel a lot calmer um, and just really kind of I don't know, I guess in balance, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and I was sort of kind of like, yeah, just a bit kind of blown away with its effects um, and it made me really curious about it. So when I was looking at finishing uh, high school, I started looking into what I'd do at university and I was really interested in maybe medical anthropology because I was very interested in um, different systems of medicine. And then I looked at naturopathy um, and then uh 
I started reading about Chinese medicine and, you know, the theories of yin and yang and, you know, the cosmology and how the five element theory, how everything has these five elements. And I just loved it. Um, and so that's what I studied straight out of school. Does that help answer your question? Mm, it does. I mean, it, it makes me think about a lot of young girls that I also see in my practice who are in year 11, year 12. And often yeah. these girls are struggling with one of two things or often both. That is irregular periods and really painful periods. And yeah. uh, I see these girls and often they're after a more natural, holistic way of managing their issues because they don't necessarily want mm. to go on the combined oral contraceptive pill. Yeah. And uh, I invariably recommend that they actually have acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So when you were yeah. 17 mm. and had this time in your life when you were not getting your period were you actually in year 11 or 12 yeah I, w I was and I was actually I was living out of home I I'm from country Victoria I was living in Melbourne doing year 11 and 12 and uh yeah it was a very anxious period of my life which continued I think from my early 20s but I think I uh did uh perhaps have um like a hypothalamic amenorrhea um at that time that just wasn't diagnosed but yeah that's right um I think it's something that you often hear um often when I'm treating um women that, who have children of that age they'll often you know tell me about their daughters or their nieces who um you know having either painful periods or irregular periods I think it's something that happens quite commonly but for me I was kind of like well if it can help me with just this which you know it was affecting me in terms of I was concerned about it, but it wasn't, um, you know, I didn't have pain and it wasn't sort of affecting, uh, you know, wasn't affecting me like a lot of gynecological conditions can. Um, but I thought, well, if it can offer me this, I wonder what else there is in terms of what Chinese medicine can offer, um, you know, in terms of women's health. So uh, that made me, you know, extremely interested in that area. And I just, and the more I learned about it, the more I kind of got really excited about how there was all these different, um, all these like all these different books and chapters upon chapters on how to you know treat things like irregular periods or painful periods, um, and you know I just found this fascinating and it just kept kind of growing and growing in terms of their interest in an area which I you know I wanted to go into and that's sort of the area I went into when I when I graduated. And did you go along with your parents to see the naturopath or the Chinese medicine doctor acupuncturist or had you gone on your own? Yeah, I went on my own when I was um when I was 17, but when I was when I was younger actually my mum had taken me to see uh, acupuncturist when I was about 11 or 12 and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> like mm. I hated it. I hated the needles. I was just found it the whole thing just uncomfortable. Um, and that was to help me with asthma and um, it did actually help uh, but I didn't enjoy the experience one little bit. Um, so it wasn't until it was a bit later in life where I had quite a different experience. So it's sort of it's interesting how, you know, different, mm. uh, you know, the same modality can be experienced in different stages in your life, I think. It's interesting you took yourself back there, um, you know, uh, having had that initial experience, what made you realise that maybe it was for you when you were 17? Well, I was very really interested in, I guess, kind of like the philosophy and the theory around it. And at the time I was doing um, some Qigong, um, which is a bit like Tai Chi, if, no, if you don't know what Qigong is. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> I've done uh, it a few times. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, but for, for other people who are listening, it's uh, and they really talked a lot about like Chinese medicine theory, so things like you know the yin and yang flow in the body, um, and you know the five elements and how they're all connected to different seasons and a different organ and a different emotion. And I just found all of that very fascinating. And um, so when I was looking for it, to try and kind of address my own health, you know, issues, I was I was you know open to trying to trying acupuncture again because I, I guess I sort of saw it in a new light. Um, and I think I'd almost sort of forgotten about my early <laughs> experiences by then. I was a bit more adventurous, a bit, a bit older. <laughs> and where did you take yourself to study Chinese medicine and acupuncture and are they always combined? Uh, they haven't always been combined. Uh, most courses, if not all courses, I'd say now in Australia are. Um, so when I was going through, there was actually quite a lot of courses that were offered. Um, I was studied in Melbourne 
And at that time there was RMIT, Victoria University, and another school called Southern Schools. Um, and I went to Southern Schools because this was um, seen to be one of uh, like a very kind of traditional course. Um, and it was within a school um, that also um, had health science degrees also in nephropathy as well as um, traditional Chinese medicine. And at that time I was so interested in both of them, I thought maybe I'll end up doing both, but I just stuck with the Chinese medicine at that time. So, yeah, it was a four-year health science degree, which they had actually um, squished it down from a five-year degree to a four-year degree when I went through. So it was uh, quite heavy, quite a heavy load. I think we had, you know, eight to ten subjects a semester. It was a bit ridiculous when I think back, but uh, I loved it. <laughs> and what was the most enjoyable part of that course for you? Well, I think, you know, the start, you start learning about the theory and the philosophy and also just the history. Um, and what's great is that, you know, you're looking at some of the textbooks that you study and they're like, they're literally, you know, back from like um, 100 um, BC, you know, like they're, they're just so old. <laughs> and some of the things that they're talking about are so advanced and relevant. Um and for examples, like like some of the acupuncture texts that we look at, which you know acupuncture developed a little bit later than herbal medicine, um, but in the, they're talking about that, you know, and then that's about like you know two uh, two two hundred two fifty AD, um, and you know they go into quite a lot of detail with all the kind of anatomy and physiology around acupuncture and the four hundred um, sorry the three hundred and fifty points. Um, yeah, and in terms of like the gynecology, uh, the history was kind of incredible as well. Like it was like as early as like 200 AD where there was like um, where doctors actually had specialties in as a gynecologist and around then there was probably about 30 formulas and then as you moved on by about 260 AD there was like textbooks where there was say 12 volumes um, and they, you know, they, there was just, just, just such a wealth of knowledge um, around kind of different gynecological disorders. Um, yeah, for example, there was like uh, there's one text which I'm sort of thinking of and it had 25, it was um, published in 652 AD and it had 25 chapters on postpartum disease, 12 chapters on pregnancy, four chapters on difficult labour, um, and described about 283 gynecological syndromes from menstruation, leucorrhea, pregnancy, postpartum. Yeah, so there, um, it, you know, it was just extraordinary, I guess, this wealth of information. And although, of course, in China, this has been a long-standing tradition in the West, Chinese medicine hasn't been um, very popular for very long. So it kind of felt like you're discovering this whole new world and it was really exciting to me. <laughs> felt like a little bit like being an anthropologist or archaeologist of health as well as, uh, you know, learning um, about these different kind of treatments and sort of philosophies of, you know, treating health and illness. Did you ever study in China? No, I didn't actually. The uh, the course that I did, uh, we weren't able to go over to China, um, regrettably, but I did actually make a trip to China and maybe this had something to do with it when I was, um, my dad did a lot of uh, work in China when I was growing up and we went over as a family and also as part of a delegation with the university and we stayed at uh, Nanjing University. And at that time, Nanjing University had all the RMIT um, Chinese medicine students who would go over there and do an internship at the Chinese Medicine Hospital, which is like an integrative Western. And um, so we stayed in the student accommodation and I met quite a lot of the Chinese medicine um, students. And I think at that time I was 14 or 15, like I was quite young. But I remember, you know, going to China was the first place I've ever been um, outside of Australia. And I was just completely blown away and in awe of their culture. I remember going to these amazing kind of Buddhist temples and um, all the history and all the culture just, ah, oh, I just, you know, I, I I was just completely blown away. I could never have imagined. It felt like another world. And so I think, you know, that probably inspired me a, a little bit as well in terms of being a bit fascinated with Chinese culture. And all these texts of Chinese medicine, have they yeah. been easy to um, obtain? Are they kept somewhere in China at a specific place? Or, oh, which one? There are so many. Natasha. Yeah. So are there different, are there different yeah. parts of China that have different ways of practicing Chinese medicine? 
Uh, yeah, and they're like, you know, we, we talk about Chinese medicine like it's this homogenous thing and that's not a reality. There was different states in China which almost acted as different countries in different um, parts of history and they developed different um, types of Chinese medicine, different strains. Um, however, what we learn today is that they've sort of synthesised a lot of the main texts, like the main kind of like the the Suwen, there's a, a, like a, a quite a few kind of quite well kind of recognised and kind of comprehensive texts. So they synthesise uh, those um, and some of them we still study in their um, kind of raw form um, when you go through Chinese medicine. Um, and a lot of them have been made into um, what we call TCM texts, which is traditional Chinese medicine texts, which sounds like it's just the traditional medicine, but no, it's actually... Um, a version of traditional Chinese medicine where it sort of has been homogenised. So it came about with the uh, with the communist um, with the revolution in 1950, and that kind of really integrated um, Western medicine ideas um, and etiologies um, and put them alongside Chinese medicine. Um, so yeah, the, these are the kind of like the these are kind of like the core textbooks which most people who study in the West would be looking at. And then a lot of people get very interested in what we call the classics. So they'll go back to the the more you know different lineages or different sort of traditional ways of looking at things. Which um, there's a lot more diversity around that. When say if I was to send you a 17 year old girl with secondary amenorrhea, so not having yeah. had a period for say a year. Mm. Uh, how do you go about assessing whether or not you start her on Chinese medicine or acupuncture, or do you often start both? Uh, that's where that's where I'm not really clear about. Yeah, sure. It's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, and the answer is it would probably have a lot to do with the patient's pe preference, but most of the time, if we can do both, we will, because um, the the herbs can really help kind of consolidate the messages that we're trying to bring about with the acupuncture treatment. So the acupuncture is really trying to get the body to work in a different way and the herbs can really consolidate that me that message. And particularly with things like um, to say it's amenorrhea, so we're trying to kind of induce ovulation. And then there's some herbs that we'd be um, advocating or would be you know thinking about using particularly in that sort of follicular phase where we're trying to kind of promote estrogen um, production and promote the development of follicles. Um, uh, there's different herbs which we'd use around ovulation to try and um, also increase and different acupuncture points to try and um, try and increase um, like ovulation to occur. Um, and, and then there's different points that we'd use to sort of support them um, hormonally post-ovulation So and as well as acupuncture points. So, yeah, I'd say most of the time most people probably use a combination. Um, some people don't like taking things or they're not very good at it. I've got patients um, who it's just not for them, um, and that's fine too. Um, and then other people are the other way around. They they prefer just to take the herbs, and they don't they don't want to do the acupuncture. But I'd say the best approach is to use both. And how long should someone give it a go before pulling the plug on it if it hasn't brought back their period? Three months, four months. Yeah, I think this is this is really interesting because uh, there's a lot of research around um, coming out at the moment around acupuncture dose and how um and, and and like its effectiveness so we know like with medication you know you need to have like a certain amount of a certain dose in order for it to be like a therapeutic dose or well, they're starting to see when they're doing kind of meta-analysis of acupuncture trials that dose is actually a really important modifying factor and we found that with a more, more recent kind of IVF meta-analysis but in in terms of this um like one of the studies around this around dysmenorrhea that they they really saw that there was a real significant difference in terms of people who had a higher or lesser dose so um one study I'm thinking of in terms of um stimulating ovulation suggests that sort of twice a week for about eight weeks um should get some results uh so I'd most of the time be recommending that people commence acupuncture but do it at pretty a pretty high dose like twice a week um, and to try and kind of maintain that for at least four weeks to see um, to see if they're going to get uh, get a result um, and then after that it can kind of be modified according to what the patient needs so often 
when I'm seeing people who have maybe irregular cycles or, um, you know, they have amenorrhea. Um, initially, we're just trying to uh, help build up the estrogen and promote ovulation, ovulation induction. Um, however, you know, once they have ovulated, we might not need to see them as regularly. So I'm often of the mind of, you know, please come in, say, twice a week um, until you've ovulated. <laughs> and then after that, I don't mind if I don't see you until the start of your next period. Um, but, you know, it takes a while to work out when they have ovulated and, um, you know, get the cycles established. So I hope that sort of answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. So do you have a favourite Chinese herb you use? If you had one favourite, what would that one Ooh. be? Or is that a hard question? It's a really hard, hard question. question. Yeah, I guess a really hard question. Um, Dangwei, uh was one herb, which is um, angelica in Western medicine. It's quite a good herb. It really, it really nourishes blood. It nourishes um, um, blood to the uterus from a Chinese medicine point of view. So we're often using that one, another herb, Baishao, in combination to help um, in that follicular phase, like for people who are trying to develop um, endometrial lining or if we're trying to um, help encourage ovulation. They're, they're two herbs. Yeah, I'd say that they're, they're pretty important kind of gynecological herbs, those two. So when a woman comes to see you with PCOS, how yeah. do you assess her and how do you manage her? Yeah, I mean, initially we'd be wanting to have a little bit of a look at her blood test results um, to see, you know, what, what is going on and how much it is, um, whether it's PCO, like polycystic ovaries, or if she's got the syndrome as well, and to what extent, how severe it is. Um, but... Uh, in terms of treatment, we would um, often be recommending that sort of twice a week um, to try and stimulate um, ovulation, twice a week acupuncture. And we'd actually do electro um, over the ovaries. So we'd do points which are directly over the ovaries that stimulate blood flow to the ovaries um, and also stimulate um, like the hormonal response that the ovaries um, have. And, and we'd also be using points on around the ankles, which are also kind of very kind of estrogenic points. Um, initially but in Chinese medicine there's a few different type reasons why people have PCOS so we'd always be addressing these as well so um, one reason for example is we call it like a blood deficiency so this is um, when the patient is uh, like you know they, they've got enough blood in terms of uh, volume but it's uh, in terms of their quality of their blood so we're looking at improving the quality of their blood and that's partly um, will have something to do with nutrition and improving their digestive system um, and it's also got to do with um, you know working out what is um, reducing their uh, the quality of the blood so sometimes this can be like women who over exercise or often have this like blood deficient um, picture um, and yeah, so we'll be doing more points, say, for someone who has that sort of blood deficient picture to kind of nourish blood. And we'd also be giving them some, some herbs that really help with that as well. Um, and there can be other, there can be other types. So another one can be, um, if they have a bit of a constitutional deficiency, um, then that can often show up in reproductive issues. So, um, from a Chinese medicine point of view, like your constitution, which we offer, we, we talk about it as like your jing, it's a really important, um, it's really important, like it's like a your battery pack, which, you know, you're given to when you're born and then you just deplete it as, as life goes on and you deplete it more when you get stressed and you deplete it more as you, um, you know, if you don't get enough sleep or your diet's not as good, these are all the things that will deplete it um, and you just deplete it also as just as you get older. So, um, but this reproductive essence or this battery pack, it kind of helps um, regulate the reproductive system. So when that's kind of weak or deficient, um, and this can, you know, be for all those reasons I've mentioned, stress, not enough sleep, overwork, um, age, then what we want to try and do is really try and uh, put some juice back into that kind of reservoir of energy. And that's overall, that's just enhancing the person's overall health and well-being, uh, but also doing some particular points to try and kind of encourage better blood flow and better energy flow through um, a meridian called, we call the conception vessel, which runs through the reproductive um, system and through the uterus. So, yeah, there's um, quite a, it depends on the, the person, how we'll address it, but I'd say 
most of the time when it comes to PCOS, we, I, I recommend come, that they come in twice a week to try and um, induce that um, ovulation. Um, and there's a bit of research around um, PCOS and acupuncture. Some of it's not great quality, um, uh, but some which is a bit better quality is around um, acupuncture for weight loss um, and also in terms of helping like mechanisms around insulin res resistance and also like the sympathetic tone. So, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a few different things that we're looking at when people come in um, when they've got uh, PCOS. How about endometriosis? How can you help a woman with endometriosis? How does it work? Yeah, so with endometriosis, there's a couple of sim like syndrome, different reasons why people will have it. There's kind of two main ones. Um, but generally we're trying to encourage better blood flow and better blood sort of circulation and distribution um, through the body. And so um, with endometriosis, it's often also got to do with what I was talking about before from a Chinese medicine point of view, where the, the person's kind of constitution or their reservoir of energy is a little bit low, which is kind of creating like an imbalance um, or, a, you know, a weakness um, in their reservoir of energy, which and is then unable to kind of regulate everything. So that's one thing that we'd be looking at. Um, and in terms of um, sort of more uh, more of like a biomedical way of looking at it, there has been some uh, quite uh, good research around interleukin-6 levels and acupuncture um, it having an effect on the interleukin-6. Um, and I was actually part of a trial. Uh, it was a feasibility study around endometriosis um, and pain. So the women which we saw in the study, they um, received uh, acupuncture twice a week for eight weeks. Um, and, what, and what we found is um, the women who were in, in this group, their pain scores reduced um, by about 50% by the end of the trial. Um, so that was really promising and and another interesting fi finding was that the, it seemed that the women um if they were going to get an improvement through acupuncture that improvement was usually there by about week four so um i guess for people listening if they've got endometriosis or or even if they've got just dysmenorrhea like painful periods um acupuncture for for pain and a way of managing pain is something you could try and you could try it for four weeks um, and at you know twice a week and if this um, even if it hasn't helped by that kind of fourth week um, it may not it may not help you but um, yeah there's some really sort of promising research done, done by out at um, Nikam at the National Institute of Complementary Medicine at Western Sydney University uh, by Dr Mike Armour. That's great. So then basically women know that if it doesn't work within a short amount of time, then maybe they should give it up. It's, it's good to know that rather than having to kind of put it in for, put the effort in for a year or so. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's what's so great, I think, about research and, you know, merging research with all this sort of this wealth of traditional knowledge is that you, sort, you do have actually have the best of both worlds you've got this kind of big kind of knowledge um repository um from the traditional side but the you know the research helps you put it a little bit into context and work out what's clinically relevant at the time um and you know and when it's helpful um yeah so i you know i like using kind of research-based um protocols for patients to make sure that they you know can get the best kind of outcome they can and and also if you don't know that research like I remember when I was younger as an acupuncturist and I, I wasn't I, I would hardly ever see people twice a week and I feel uncomfortable to ask them to come in twice a week um, but since there's been more research that's come out around the this kind of higher dose acupuncture for a shorter uh, period of time I've been a lot more comfortable asking patients to come in um, because I know there's something to support that um, treatment recommendation and uh, I've also found that you know they often, you know, will get results more quickly, and so everyone's happy. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's a real. There's a real place for those kind of for the research to sort of help you make those clinical recommendations. But surely, given the fact that Chinese medicine is so old, that the Chinese have done lots of research and study in this area. But obviously, being in yeah. Chinese most of the time, often mm. probably doesn't get translated into English, which then oh, look, it, it does. Yeah. And it, 
And I guess the issue is that, you know, Chinese medicine is a, very much a part of the public health system in China. So a lot of the research which is done in China, it is very high dose acupuncture. However, often in the West, we're trying to do acupuncture research, it's lower dose, but just because it's often not very feasible for people to come in uh, twice a week financially and also like time wise. Um, so I think for a long time, we're trying to kind of actually fit um, the acupuncture treatment into people's lives um, and not the other way around. So I think that's what's sort of changed um, in terms of the way, way we've looked at it. A lot of the Chinese research does um, do this kind of high dose, but it's more difficult to um, uh, ask people for to, to do Would you this. say that that's not giving Chinese medicine a chance? It's a bit like hormonal therapy yeah. in women when yeah. we have to put someone on estradiol for HRT, for example. Yeah. If you give them too low a dose, it just won't work. It won't work well enough, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which leaves the woman distraught. So, yeah. you know, the, the conversation comes that- up as to whether or not you start her on the higher dose when she's yeah. fully relieved, you then start titrating down rather than having this yeah. woman hanging around yeah. for weeks or months on end yeah. with hot flushes and night sweats, which you know you yeah. can resolve with a higher dose. Don't you think we may be cheating yeah. people by not going down the way that the Chinese do it in the Western yeah. world? Yeah, absolutely. And like, as I said, like, you know, I, I, I think I probably had six or seven years practicing um, before I started feeling comfortable asking people to come in more than once a week. Um, and that's because, you know, Chinese medicine or acupuncture is a private service in Australia and it can be expensive for people. Um, but yeah, now I, I feel a lot more confident um, in asking them um, because I just sort of see the results and I see how they get there a lot quicker. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. It's about... Um, kind of giving people treatment options that are, you know, kind of going to give them, uh, most of the time people just want the best outcome. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's up to them to decide um, what they can and can't do. So, yeah, um, yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, a real impo- really important point. I think the mantra start low and go slow, it doesn't apply to everything in medicine. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I find the role of Chinese medicine and acupuncture in patients undergoing IVF really interesting. Uh, yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. And, um, I mean, I think this comes back to the dose research as well. Um, there was quite a big uh, study done um, recently in Australia and it was a big randomised control study and it was also done at Western Sydney uh, University. And... Uh, the finding was that they 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 basically did three acupuncture sessions. So there was one um, during the stimulation cycle, and then one before and after the embryo transfer, um, which is a very low dose. <laughs> so and and this research, um, unfortunately, or in in a way, um, we had really big numbers. Like we had good statistical power. Um, it was almost a thousand participants. Um, however, the dose was. Um, you know, for most acupuncture trials, they're looking at, you know, probably a minimum, I'd say, most of the time of about eight treatments. And a lot of the time it's around sort of 16. But this this, this one was measuring three treatments. Um, and the outcome it was looking for was a change in live birth rates. Um, and if you work in fertility, like measuring live birth rates, like that's, well, that's kind of like the hardest outcome to measure rather than just, you know, clinical pregnancy mm-hmm. rate. The most important outcome. Yeah. Well, that's right. Um, so... This research found that they they trialled it and they did it uh, a, a comparison between women who were just having a placebo, so a placebo acupuncture, like a sham sham needling. Is that what sham um, is? Sham is placebo, is it? Well, there's, a, there, there's if in the placebo arm, there can be different. Um, there, there can be different types of placebo in acupuncture, but for this trial, there was sham needling, so it was a. A needle was used which actually just kind of collapses into itself Mm. Um, and so the patient doesn't know if it's gone into the skin or not Um, and we use this funny device, these park devices where you pop the needle um, inside this little cylinder and then press it in and so the patient can't see what's happening. (laughs) I was part of this trial Um, and it was a a tricky one. Um, So basically the patients would come in and they'd get either the sham needling or they'd get the real needling um, but either way, that found that there wasn't much, there wasn't any difference between um, the two groups in terms of live birth rates. Um, and so this was a real shame. <laughs> it really put the uh, wind out of the acupuncture sort of sales in the IVF space for some time. But um, 
Did they compare Later that they- though to women who weren't having any acupuncture, be it real or sham? Uh, yeah, no, they didn't have a group like that and because they find that quite hard to recruit for because um, most people want to have some sort of treatment. Mm. Um, but two years later they did a meta-analysis and they included the data from this study and then they looked at, uh, there's been a lot of research, um, well, well, quite a few studies, I think eight or nine kind of fairly big studies which have been done on, in IVF acupuncture space. Um, and what they found is that when um, women had over three treatments, it seemed to have a significant effect on their clinical pregnancy rates. Um, and another one, one of the um, bodies of research which they included in the study was uh, research done by Hollander, um, who's a researcher in the United States, and she um, did a retrospective cohort study um, with about a thousand participants, and she was looking at how acupuncture um, and what she called a whole systems Chinese medicine approach and how that affected um, uh, life birth outcomes. Um, And her findings uh, were quite favourable in terms of the whole systems Chinese medicine group. Um, She found that women who had on average 12 acupuncture sessions, so quite a lot more, and some of these women would be taking um, either herbs or supplements as felt necessary. Um, and they had a live birth outcome of um, increase of 61.3%. And the usual care group had quite a high um, uh, quite a high um, live birth outcome as well at 48.2%. Um, and this one was interesting because they also compared it to women who just did the embryo transfer acupuncture who just had 2% more, a bit over 2% more than um, the usual care group at like a 50%. Um, yeah, so this was interesting research that they included within this meta-analysis and basically that the meta-analysis concluded that, you know, a, a, that um, dose was a really important modifier in terms of um, women's IVF outcomes when it came to um, them including acupuncture as an adjunctive therapy. So uh, what we've sort of taken away from that from uh, at the acupuncture pregnancy clinic, like what we're kind of including now, is um, really um, you know, asking patients if they can come in um, to try and meet that kind of what we'd call like the gold standard of, you know, seeing, coming in for around sort of 12 sessions um, and that's including the acupuncture they'd be taking throughout their IBS cycle. Um, and it often usually means that they'll, um, if, they, if they are going to do this, that they'll come in for a month or two before um, starting their IVF cycle. Um, and, yeah, uh, so that is, you know, that that's what I would say would be like kind of the gold standard. But another really interesting finding from the meta-analysis, which um Carolyn Smith and her colleagues um, out at Nickham at Western Sydney University um, did in 2019 um, is that they found that um, actually that embryo transfer acupuncture on its own was actually helpful in some groups of women. So um, particularly women who had like high levels of stress and anxiety, they seemed to, um, um, even when they compared them to sham, they seemed to get a better um, better outcomes in terms of a a clinical pregnancy rate. Uh, and um, also women who had like a, a repeated failure, um, IVF failure um, or a low pregnancy baseline. So these these were the groups which seemed to do better, um, have significantly better outcomes when they incorporated embryo transfer acupuncture on its own. So I think there's a place for embryo transfer acupuncture on its own. Um, I think there's a in order for a more kind of holistic treatment and for a more, um, I think, substantial um, uh, benefit, I, I think that higher dose acupuncture, which I mentioned earlier, um, is really sort of the way to go and it's really what we kind of advocate to our patients we recommend for them to do if they can. Um, the other thing this study found is that uh, with a randomised control trial that I, I mentioned earlier, although physiologically um, there wasn't any sort of uh, favourable outcomes in terms of acupuncture. So this is one I, I mentioned earlier where there was just three three acupuncture sessions. What they found is that um, both groups had a significant reduction in their stress levels um, and the acupuncture group had a, a statistically significant um, reduction when compared to um, the sham group. So 
I think there's a real role um, in terms of acupuncture, in terms of, of the psychological support that it can offer patients um, when they're going through IVF, which is just inherently stressful and hard. Um, I think most people who have either been through it or if they've had close family members or friends who have been through IVF, it's, I don't think anyone kind of goes through it without experiencing some level of stress um, and anxiety. So, so with the 12 sessions, yeah. Uh, yeah. does that involve the month preceding IVF treatment or is it 12 sessions as they're actually going through ovarian stimulation and including the embryo transfer? Sorry, yeah. So to be clear, to be clear um, before and during the stimulation phase. Okay. So leading up to the embryo transfer and including the embryo transfer acupuncture. So, um, and the month uh, before? Uh, yeah, and so including the month before as well. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so this usually works out. We say if you going maybe try and come in about a month before you see um, you, you, you're commencing your IVF, um, and if we can see you for that month before twice a week, then we think that that then it's, it's sort of like we're we're doing a lot of like hormonal points in that month before. We're doing all the prep work in that month before, and then we're trying to kind of help um, with the stimulation. Um, during the IVF stimulation phase. Do you ever do acupuncture on the day of egg collection? No, we don't. And why is that? Um, uh, because of the general anaesthetic. Um, so the after general anaesthetic, we, it's just generally contraindicated to do, to do acupuncture. Um, and that's just because it can play around with the bioavailability of the anaesthetic. So we, we don't want to do that. But we do see people the day after, um, and that can be really helpful um, if they're feeling uncomfortable, bloated, have any pain. Um, it can be really helpful. Um, and we'll often say, let us know how you're going. Um, if they've got a lot of follicles, if we know they've got a lot of follicles, we'll probably book them in or suggest that they come in the day after egg collection. Um, and if they're going forward for a tra fresh transfer just so they can go into transfer knowing that that whole area is feeling a lot more comfortable um, and hopefully we can reduce any inflammation in that area um, and just work on uh, you know preparing them for the embryo transfer um, and if you know if we're not sure if they're uh, how they're going to respond we just let them know that they can come in um, that the day after em uh, sorry the day after egg pickup um, and that could be something that should be quite helpful and on the day of embryo transfer, you uh, do acupuncture before and after the transfer, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And yeah. how long do they spend with each session? So usually it's about just 40 minutes um, prior and 40 minutes um, after. So normally the needles need to be retained for about 20, 25 minutes. And so it's really just, you know, seeing the patient and having a consult. And, yeah, so we usually will try and see them just before they go into um, the embryo transfer where we are in, um, you know, at Alexandria we're right on site with an IVF clinic so we can we, we can do that um, and then try and see them as soon as possible after. So we, we try and do it as close together as we can and it's actually because um, the, the research suggests that, you know, as close together as possible is, is, is probably better and with as less travel is probably better. Um, and that's actually why the acupuncture pregnancy clinic was, you know, initially established was to provide that service. Um, the Paulus research, which came out in 2002, showed that there was like a really favourable result for women who did embryo transfer acupuncture. Um, and, you know, back then IVF was quite different, but uh, there was a clinical pregnancy rate of 42.5% um, for women who did the pre and post embryo transfer. And that was like birthing the usual care um, group of which had a, a, a live, sorry, clinical pregnancy rate of 26.3%. My concern with patients using herbs going through IVF treatment is, is that I don't know what's in the herbs and I don't know how they're going to interact with the drugs that I prescribe. Yeah. Is, that yeah, yeah. is that unreasonable? I don't think that is, is it? No, no. I, mean, no, I don't have any that, issues with acupuncture. No, that's that's extremely reasonable. Mm. So usually we don't use herbs. We actually don't use herbs ever in our clinics. Um, only in very certain circumstances we'll use them when someone's going through a stimulation phase, and that's because we just there's no research to suggest um, 
like we we don't know what they do either, you know, in, in conjunction with the medication that an IVF doctor would be prescribing. So we just don't prescribe them. Um, we tell patients as soon as, like herbs have quite a quick washout period, about sort of 24 hours. So we say as soon as they, uh, you know, get their period, that they, they stop taking Chinese medicine herbs when they're about to start a stimulation cycle. Um and yeah, we usually um, if we're gonna if they're gonna take herbs, they'll do it the month before. Um, they do the IVF cycle and not during them. We do give them herbs um, after embryo transfer if it's appropriate. Um, but they're pretty, uh, they're very they're like safe for pregnancy. Uh, very kind of simple formulas. Yeah. And how about uh, in preparation for a frozen embryo transfer as part of a woman's natural cycle? What happens then? Fairly similar to what you do in a simulated cycle. Um, and, yeah, there's some good uh, research around this in terms of using, like, the electroacupuncture, which we often use, um, prepping the endometrial um, lining um, before an em- um, before a embryo transfer. So usually, again, we'd say if they can come in the month before, that's really where we're going to do the work in terms of their overall kind of fertility and hormones and things like that and then we're just gonna it's gonna be like the icing on the cake um during the actual cycle but again i'm I'm, we're looking back to the um the meta-analysis research which which also suggested that you know over three um sessions can be um have a significant effect in terms of um improving um pregnancy rates and you established the Alexandria Multidisciplinary <laughs> Education Series. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, so, um, oh, when was that? I think I think it was about two years ago where I first started talking about this. And I, uh, I, I think I emailed Jane, who's the director of the Acupuncture Pregnancy Clinic, so she's the founder, Jane Littleton, and said, I've got this great idea. I think it'd be great. I just want to get, I want to get everyone who's got something to do with um, fertility. I want to get all the practitioners, I want to get them in a room. And uh, I just want us to talk to each other and listen and tell each other. And I just thought it was this great way of um, cross-pollination of ideas, I guess. And, and for people to start kind of recognise, or the practitioners to start kind of recognising and understanding what it, what we all, all do because often we worked in quite sort of siloed um, kind of capacity um, and some of the feedback I got from some of the nurses at the IVF clinic that attended, they said it was actually great for them to um, be included as well because they felt that, you know, they uh, often, they, they didn't know, you know, certain doctors take on different things with certain doctors which ta- uh, were talking so basically, um, what I did is I tried to have someone who was like a naturopath or a researcher in nutritional medicine um, speak, as well as an IVF uh, doctor, like a fertility specialist, um, as well as a Chinese medicine practitioner or um, acupuncture researcher. Um, so we'd have three presentations, and at the end of the presentations, um, we just had the, an open floor for questions and a panel um, would bring up other um, other extra experts <laughs> for the panel and um, it was fairly it was quite well received I mean other uh, sorry other disciplines we had involved were nurses um, I had counsellors who came and spoke about you know stress going through IVF and how they you know manage patients through through that and yeah it was um, it was wonderful I think I think all in all I think we had five sessions over 2019 um so basically I talked to Jane about this and then I went to Dr Gavin Sachs and said I've got this idea and he was wonderful he just uh was so supportive um so he along with IVF Australia and um Alexandria Specialist Day Hospital um with huge supports and we together um yeah created this talk series which we did last year um yeah, I and think what's happened over is COVID? that it? <laughs> yeah, what's happened over COVID? I've, I've been meaning to get to those <laughs> meetings. To be honest, I've never, I never managed to make one. But please, yeah, I was keep, wondering if you, please yeah, keep inviting me. Please keep inviting yeah, yeah. me because I'm going to make yeah. it one day. No, because yeah. that's a that's a really awesome thing that you've done there, and oh, I'm quite jealous you. that you know your unit is doing that. Um, that's pretty amazing to bring you know people from different perspectives together, where people can be open and minded enough to turn up to a meeting to be able to listen to people that 
work in different areas. So, you know, good on you. Mm. Um, oh, thanks. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I think uh, everyone quite enjoyed it. And, uh, yeah, I think we got a lot out of it. So we definitely want to do more things like this in the future. But, yeah, COVID's uh, given us a bit of a, a curveball. So we'll see um, how 2020 looks, I think. And are you inviting um, – obviously, I've been invited a few times and I'm not, I don't work with IVF Australia, but would you in future invite other doctors from other IVF clinics to come? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we uh, invited a lot. It was a pretty open invite Mm. Um, last time. Yeah. It was not about, um, it was was more like an education forum. Yeah. Than anything else. Uh, We're actually talking about at the end of it, like doing a more of a, like a one day or a weekend thing um, rather than lots of evenings. Um, so maybe that's something we'll look at doing in 2020. Um, but yeah, like, I think this year everyone's been a bit tied up with just, uh, dealing with all the changes. Yeah. Well, any other research you wanted to share with us before I ask you some uh, getting to know you questions, Amy? Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think I was saying to you earlier, I just, um, I can't think of any research off the top of my head except for the research that I'm um, helping out with at the moment. So I'm working at Nickham um, under Dr. Carolyn E and we're, we've been doing this research into um, GPs and what their um, education needs are in terms of um, complementary medicine or integrative medicine. So we're looking at developing some education for GPs around kind of complementary medicine and integrative medicine and so it's been really fun just uh, interviewing GPs and um, going through all the data from the surveys. And, well, I can't really talk too much about I was going to ask you, what have results. you found so far? Damn, damn, <laughs> yeah, Amy. Yeah. So it's not like published. <laughs> Hopefully we'll publish it quite soon. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then I can, I can have you back you on the show. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to talk about it and we'll get Carolyn involved as well. Um, yeah, so that's been really exciting, uh, you know, having a look at that because I feel like, that is the way forward is um, integrative medicine, education for medical professionals. So I'm pretty excited. Can I ask one question? Uh, sure. Are GPs open to integrative medicine? Um, I think I think I think it's, it's mixed. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's very mixed. I think a lot of GPs are, and they sort of, but they don't know a lot about it. Um, I think some GPs are very into it. Um, and then there's other GPs who just they also just don't they're, they're not interested. It's not it's not the scope. Doesn't float the their scope boat. of what no not what they want to do, and that's fine. You know, there's um it's good that there's a, a diverse group. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think me- medical practitioners are very diverse. Yeah, as are patients, and you know, obviously, if a patient yeah. wants to have some an integrative GP, they will seek one out. Yeah, and I, exactly. my understanding is integrative GPs are very popular because of that, you know, that they're yeah. offering things that a lot of patients do want, um, surprisingly, yeah. not surprisingly. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So in, in your life, Amy, which people have been your biggest inspirations thus far, both in your professional and maybe personal world? Mm, um, well, probably the person who stands out the most is Jane Littleton. So she's pretty Jane, awesome. She's can you pretty can awesome. you tell our listeners about Jane? <laughs> yeah, so Jane's the founder of the Acupuncture Pregnancy Clinic, and I think I think I hadn't even finished studying, and I went to a conference and saw her speak, and I think it was just when she was starting out the Acupuncture Pregnancy Clinic, or maybe I just just finished studying. Anyway, uh, so it's back in I think two thousand and seven or six. I saw her speaking at a conference, and I was just like, wow. this woman's amazing um and so she started off as a geneticist um so she was a scientist and she was quite uh she didn't think much of alternative medicines or complementary medicines and but later she went on to study Chinese medicine but through a very sort of scientific lens um and then started getting very interested in fertility and so she has written a book called um treating infertility with Chinese medicine and it uh, I think it's in its oh, umpteenth um, <laughs> reprint. Uh, yeah, it's on its seventh reprint uh, now um, in English and it's been made available in several other languages. And um, basically it, it it's sort of the textbook uh, mm. for treating infertility and it's used all over the world. 
But Jane's just a wonderful person. <laughs> and so I've been so lucky when I moved to Sydney. Um, I worked for her clinic in Melbourne for a short time. And then when I moved to Sydney, I've, I've worked um, in this at the acupuncture pregnancy clinic um, and worked along her. And she is, she just has so much um, tenacity and she's just done so much for Chinese medicine and also a really a researched no-nonsense approach, which I really appreciate. Um, she's given me a real appreciation for how you can have a research-based practice. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I think she's what she's, she's been a pioneer and what she's, um, her legacy is kind of just invaluable in terms of Chinese medicine. So, yeah, she's definitely someone who I've found like she's been a big kind of inspiration and a mentor to me. So I felt I've been very, very lucky um, to work with her. Yeah, I've got a copy of her book and I've looked through it a few times. Oh, really? And, yeah. yeah, wow. And I've tried impressive. to understand it and I'm yeah, thinking, wow, this is amazing. Like yeah. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but ridiculous. it's a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah, even just the pages smell good. I, I'm into smelling <laughs> the pages of a book and, yeah, you know, she's, <laughs> great. She, she's a pretty amazing woman. Um, yeah. So apart from that book, do you have any other favourite books you wanted to share with us? So I, I have this book that I've been meaning to read and I kind of afflict it through it, you know, time and time again but not actually mm. fully read it called The Spark in the Machine. Have you heard of that one? I have heard of that one actually, mm. yeah. And I love what yeah. it says on the cover. Uh, it says how the science of acupuncture explains the mysteries of Western medicine. <laughs> I, think, I think that's yeah. really funny. Um, yeah. But do you have any good, any good books that you wanted to share with us? That sounds like a great one. I'll have to look it up. Um, yeah, I mean I think still like Probably, I remember when I was thinking about doing Chinese medicine, and I went to um, the Chinese medicine school and said to the the course coordinator, I said, I'm thinking about doing this, but I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Could you suggest any books? And he gave me this reading list. Um, and one of them was Between Heaven and Earth. And it had a, like, in it, it has like a little survey you can do to try and kind of work out what, you know, elements you are the most in from a Chinese medicine point of view and sort of explain Chinese medicine cosmology and I just thought it was a fascinating book and it just blew my mind. So I, I, I think I'm going to switch down that one. Between <laughs> yeah, I think it was just one that really changed my life. Like, it, you know, yeah. I kind of went, wow, this stuff, wow, this is great. Um, there's some other great Chinese medicine books like The Web That Has No Weaver is another wonderful one. Um, but that one was the one that really kind of, I don't know, it caught my attention. And how about songs that make you happy? Ah, songs. Um, I'm a real dag. I love Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> Anything by Fleetwood Mac. Oh. You're not that old, yeah. though, are you? I always oh, picture I, people who own a Fleetwood Mac a bit older than you, Amy. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little bit older than you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> so Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. And um, do you have a dream collaboration? Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting because it's very similar to, you know, the spark in the machine, that byline um, with, you know, how acupuncture solves the mysteries that Western medicine can't. My um, dream collaboration is just having, like, interdisciplinary think tank mm. um, where, you know, whatever the condition or health problem, we get everyone in a room, we get scientists and people from all different disciplines in their medicine, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic, naturopath nutritionist <laughs> we get them all in there and we just kind of go this is our problem what is everyone's perspective and then from there trying kind of mm. uh, again I guess it's like you know cross-pollination of ideas and what and um, you know what are the kind of like the key areas we can kind of problem solve together uh, I don't know I like problem solving and I like kind of thinking about it from a few different perspectives to kind of make it a bit more exciting um so yeah that would be my dream collaboration is a um, a multidisciplinary think tank. <laughs> you know, you're so already, you're one, kind of already know. doing that, aren't you? But I think, yeah, even having yeah. like a weekly meeting where you can um, bring up a, a patient case and say, hey, I've got this woman, you know, I think she's got PCOS, yeah. but it could be something else. How yeah. would an Ayurvedic practitioner approach that? How would a Chinese medicine doctor approach that? How would a, a gynecologist, yeah. conventional gynecologist approach mm. that? How would a Reiki practitioner approach that? I mean, can yeah. you imagine if you had all of these people in one room? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you imagine, you know, <laughs> yeah. that is the most uh, yeah. worked up, 
cared for patient, I think, when, yeah. when that happens, you know. And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's really integrative care when the doctors, I think, communicate with each other rather than the patient being the mm. one who's managing their own integration. Um, and they're actually just sort of stuck in the middle of all these mm. different types of care. So, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And, and, and it really isn't wonderful. that hard, you know. It just I feel it opens, it just, it just requires an open mind. Mm. That's all it yeah. does, I feel, yeah. from the the perspective of the practitioner. Because most patients, they'll be like, hell yeah, you can ask whoever you want about my problem as long as you solve my problem. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. I just want my problem to be solved. How yeah. are you going to go about doing this? And, yeah, and, uh, yeah I, I only see great appreciation from patients when they know that a number of people have looked at their case. When, when you say to a patient, I don't really know what's going on with you, but I'm going to take it to a meeting and there are going to be other people there and I'm going to ask them the questions that I think are relevant mm. to your case. Patients love that. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel the same when, like, sometimes I'll treat a patient um, and say, so, for example, I was talking about with the PCOS, um, you know, the usual what we, we do. And, like, and if it hasn't worked, I'm kind of like, well, this is a bit unusual. <laughs> and, and then, you know, my role as a practitioner is like, okay, well, what can we do? What are the next steps? And really, like, flesh flesh, flesh that out with them. What are the next steps? And um, you know, it, it, I think that's, you know, really important too is to be able to recognise where the scope of your role and if something isn't working to be kind of like, okay, well, what else can we offer you? And, you know, often patients will come in and they'll have a lot going on and um, I can, uh, what, we, what we can do is acupuncturists and Chinese medicine, we can, we, you know, we can address some of it, but some of it we can't. And, you know, I love helping them just kind of navigate their way through in terms of, who would be the best person to see for this and <laughs> what help they can get here and there. And so they kind of walk out feeling like, oh, great, all, all these things are being going to be addressed. This is great. You know, I've got I can feel like I'm uh, kind of progressing with like learning about, you know, how to address my health issues or fertility issues. So, um, yeah, that's. I mean, I, I love kind of having that kind of interdisciplinary care for that reason. I just feel like, yeah, like you say, the patients just feel very, um, supported and yeah, appreciated, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Top five tips then for being a kick-ass Chinese practitioner. Do you have some? <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be five tips. It can be as many tips as you want. <laughs> um, I think um, I've been a mentor a couple of times and I think the, the biggest thing is to not sort of rush in as a practitioner um, into your ideas or your solutions and, really just stop and listen. Just I always say the first, just shut up. For the first, you know, five, ten minutes you, to let your patient talk, let them tell you st their story and what they're going to tell you is going to be a lot more significant and meaningful than, you know, the, the kind of dot point questions you might have in, in your head. <laughs> um, so I think that's my number one is just listen. You know, that's um, you're only going to find out sort of, how they're feeling and what their story is and their why, you know, why they're coming to you, why they're here and, you know, um, if you listen. Um, and then I think, you know, once you understand what their problems are, um, then you can really kind of help and share ideas about what maybe Chinese medicine can offer and what you think maybe other practitioners or other people in the healthcare team, might they might be able to offer. Like often I'm seeing IVF patients, for example, and, um, you know, they're very stressed or um, and just, you know, saying have they, you know, contacted the counselling service that often counselling is offered as a complimentary service when they're doing through going through IVF and just, you know, talking to them about what supports they might have um, in terms of uh, psychological support and things that they can do to manage their stress. Um, so, you know, things like that. So then I, then I think I think when you really understand the problem, then you can start kind of, you know, start workshopping and sharing ideas um, and, you know, having that sort of shared decision-making with patients about, you know, what, what, what might be the best way forward for them. Um, the other thing I think I'm really big on is um, not trying to be God <laughs> um, and really knowing that your work um, and what, you know, what you're doing is um, – you're really privileged to be in a position where you, you know, have this information, you know, you've learnt this medicine um, and, like, I, I feel very lucky with Chinese medicine. I feel like it's very 
um, it's a great medicine and it's really helpful, but um, I am not the medicine. <laughs> Medicine's a medicine. Um, and don't try and be God, don't try and treat everything and don't think that it's you which is doing the work, it's the medicine that's doing the work and you're just facilitating it <laughs> and be a bit humble because uh, I think sometimes when people do use a modality or a medicine of any type and they see it start working, they sort of take it personally um, in a way and think it's all them but it's really just you applying it, um, a medicine that you've been very lucky to learn. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, just taking a, a step back <laughs> would be my other, my, and I think, uh, yeah, it, to not kind of go into that kind of it's all, it's you. Um, what else? I think um, keep curious, just, you know, keep reading, keep researching. You can always find out more. If you're not sure about something, um, be honest about it. Say what you know, say what you're not sure about, look it up, <laughs> you know, keep keep continuing to know more. Um, and also I think the other big thing which I think is often missing in our profession is um, it, it, often people work quite siloed in private practice and um, what I love about uh, my working environment is that we've got quite a good team and there's several clinics and we all, the practitioners come together and I really love that. And so I think if you can find um, someone, if, you know, you're earlier in your practice, find someone to be a um a mentor to you and I, I i used to still go even after i'd finished i used to go back to a practitioner who i used to um observe i used to go back to her for, for a long time and i really appreciated everything she um she taught me um but you yeah, know find a mentor and if you've been if you're an experienced practitioner offer that to others i think um because i feel you know i only know what i know because i've other people have uh, been really generous in, um, in lots of different ways and shared that information with me. And so I feel like it's my duty to be super generous as well. And anyway, I, I, I quite enjoy um, helping other people kind of, you know, discover and learning. And so I think if you, what you've got, be generous with it as well. I think sometimes there can be this, oh, my secret source sort of mentality. <laughs> um, and I don't have a lot of time for that I think is um it's not helpful it's not serving everyone and like I said before I think you know just you're not no one's god we're all just kind of like learning and let's just help each other yeah so that's um that that'd be my tips I guess that's my philosophy <laughs> in practice yeah well thank you Amy for sharing your philosophy today oh you're very welcome it's been lovely chatting with you I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Amy Forth. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.